Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold, and I've got Dr. Mark Muska sitting across the studio table from me, which makes me very happy. And he, <laughs> you're looking at me and funny, which I'm I appreciate. looking at you and smiling. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. We're friends. So We're this makes it yeah. way fun for me. And I Partners hope for, in bad humor. Exactly. Yeah. We hope it's a, a good hour for you, too. It's Ask the Professor, which means any question you have. Well, let us know what it is. 877-933-2484. If you like email, you can email bill at myfaithradio.com. Or, again, the text number, 877-933-2484. How you doing, Mark? I am tired, but I'm good. Good. Um, you going to watch baseball tonight? Uh, no, I think my wife and I are going to go out to dinner first, nice. and so I probably will see some of the okay. later part. But, Those games, yeah. they do run long. Ryan and I were they talking do. about they, yeah. they do last a long time. It's been a fun World Series. Oh, it's been very fun. Yeah, very competitive. Yeah. So. Do you have a team you're pulling for? I'm pulling for Atlanta. They, yeah, uh, too. They look like the Twins did it back in 87, where they only won 88 games, but boy, they've gotten hot. And oh, yeah. And At the right time. Knocking off these teams. Yeah. <laughs> when they played L.A., L.A. would have finished 17 games ahead of them if they were in the same division. Yeah. <laughs> they beat them. My goal so. is to peak at the right time. Everybody likes the underdog. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Mm-hmm. All right. I want to open up Luke chapter 7 and talk about okay. a couple of items in this chapter. When we talk about the uh, raising of the widow's uh, son and the Lord saw her, had compassion on her and said, do not weep. Of course, she's in the middle of her son's funeral. Um, and then he came and touched and the, the, um, the bearer stood up and the man, and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus Mm -hmm. gave him to his mother. Yeah. Can't think of a more powerful thing to have witnessed. Unbelievably good. Yeah. But that leads me to my next point, uh, which is just a setup for this message now getting to John the Baptist. So the disciples of John reported all these things to him, and John calling two of his disciples to him. So he still had some people on his team, didn't he? John the Baptist? You bet. Yep. And he sent them to the Lord, saying, Are you the one to come, or should we look for another? Now, is this a verse that has confused many over the decades? Well, everybody tries to get in John's head and why why he asked. Okay. Because he had clearly declared that Jesus was the Messiah when he was baptized. Uh, The Gospel of John makes that so blatantly clear in the first chapter because John says, the one who sent me to baptize told me, the one upon whom you see the Holy Spirit descend, he is the one. And so after that, John says, I have seen and I testify, he is the Son of God. So Mm -hmm. he knew that Jesus was the Messiah. So we can have fun with it if you want to unpack it a little bit. I do want a little bit because Jesus would say to the... uh, the Samaritan woman at the well, I am he. Yeah. Okay. 
But he, the response to John was, well, go tell John what you've seen and heard. The right. blind receive their sight, the lame, the, the yep. lame uh, walk, uh, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. Yeah. How about, I am he? Tell well, him, I am he. And even with that Samaritan woman, literally, all it says is, I am. And your translations yeah. put the he in there. Uh-huh. And so uh, Jesus is coy about that. He doesn't ever, you know, okay, let's stop everything here for a minute. I just want to clear something up. I am the Messiah. <laughs> I am the Son of God. He's not that way. Uh, and I like this with John because uh, it's almost like he's saying to John, I don't think it's really directed at John, uh, but to John's disciples and his own disciples, he quotes Isaiah 35 there about the blind sea, the lame walk, and the and the uh, poor have the good news. Uh, that's right out of Isaiah 35, clear messianic passage. So Jesus says, uh, just put it together. You guys are smart enough. If this is what you're seeing and this is what I'm doing, and look at the passage. Uh, this is it. Connect the dots. Mm-hmm. So, but as far as why John asked that, I have a little fun with my students on this to say, well, you know, the education majors get in there and they say, well, John asked this because he sends his disciples to ask Jesus this, and it's going to be a quote teachable moment for his disciples to hear it from Jesus himself that he's the one, and so he did this for the benefit of his disciples to uh, teach them teachable moment. Uh, the psych majors get in there and they psychoanalyze John. You know, he's been the top thing in town, but now he's in a dungeon. He's not going to live much longer. He's depressed. You know, mm-hmm. he's he's questioning himself and he's even questioning Jesus. So this is a, a manifestation of somebody that's very sad and now doubting about Jesus. I don't think either one of those fit with John. Uh, John knew perfectly well what his life was going to be and how it was going to end. And so I like it where he says, are you the one or should we look for another? It's almost like he's inciting Jesus or motivating him because you got to remember these people, what did they think the Messiah was going to do when he came? He was going to conquer. He'd throw out the Romans. He'd establish the throne of David and Israel would be brought back to his glory days when David was their king. And Jesus hasn't done any of that. And so... Uh, I think we have to allow John to be confused by that, along with a lot of others, to say, are you the one? Get to it. You know, uh, we're ready. And uh, he's he's uh, motivating Jesus, trying to at least, to establish his kingdom. So, uh, I mean, that tells you that John didn't even understand this about Jesus, that he was coming as the humble servant here now and not the conquering Messiah. So uh, he uh, it was clarified for him. Mm-hmm. Mark, did the translators also insert the word he in John 18 when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane? And they're saying, uh, Jesus says, who do you want? And Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus answered. Do you think they inserted the he in that verse as well? It could be. Because it goes on to to say that when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Can you imagine this? Well, it might have been some thunder in the background when he said it, too. You know, there's nothing said like that. (laughs) Jesus has voice projection if he needed it. You know, I mean, talk about a radio guy all the way so he can do this. Uh, I can give you a tip, though, Bill, and uh, for uh, listeners, too, I hope you realize that in your Bibles, if there are words supplied to help understand what the passage is saying in English, they almost all translations put those supplied words in italics in your Bible. So that 
you can see what it literally said with the original language, but then they'll supply words like that just to make it easier to read. Otherwise, sometimes we can't understand the idioms or the expressions without a little help from the translators. So Mm -hmm. that's something people can look for themselves. Yeah. And then if we get back to Luke chapter 7, Mark, Mm -hmm. we're now down in verse 23, and it says, Mm -hmm. and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Mm -hmm. How come that didn't get into the uh, Sermon on the Mount, or did it? I don't know. I I, I don't think well, you're going to hear it there. Yeah, but, but what, is it, what does it mean, blessed is the one who is not offended? Because the gospel is offensive, right? It is, yep. So is he saying blessed is the one who has heard the message and has not, um, who has received it? Yeah, or, who I hasn't been offended by it. Yeah. So, yeah, he's come to draw, and to those who are offended by it, uh, look out that uh, they've they've got a problem. Mm-hmm. All right. Speaking of Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the peacemakers. Mm -hmm. What about Jesus turning tables in the temple? Can we express anger when someone steals from us? Yeah, I think that there is a a longing for righteousness and morality that we have within us. And so uh, this, when it is thwarted or broken, uh, this is a very much a natural human reaction. And uh, Jesus even displayed it himself. So... Uh, we are to be at peace with all people, if possible, but the times do come when we get angry. And uh, there is a, uh, sometimes people try to call this a righteous anger. In my experience, usually that's an excuse for them just being mad. But there is such a thing as being angry about sin and being angry about what it does, especially to vulnerable people who don't deserve to be the recipients of the consequence of the sin. That uh, that makes me angry when there's someone who is suffering because of evil that is uh, that is taking over, taking them. That's that's something to be angry about. Yet there, we are also called. I like Ephesians four twenty six when Paul gives us some nice interpersonal advice there to say, you know, be angry and yet don't sin. Let don't let the sun go down on your anger. If I'm understanding him right there, he's saying, take the anger off of the stove and take it out of the stew pot. You're not to just sit there and stew over this stuff. You're to deal with it and to come back to a more serene attitude. Mm-hmm. All right. In John fourteen twenty eight, Jesus says, the Father is greater than I. Why do you think Jesus says this? Is it because he is in human form? It could be. Uh, this gets argued about, Bill. That th- this is a, a, an interesting question about the nature of the Trinity and how that works. And especially uh, in the church today, among theologians, there is a big debate going on about what they label as the eternal subjection of the Son to the Father. Is that true? Does that what the Bible teaches? There's no argument that I know of about Jesus submitting himself to the Father when he walked the earth. He says that earlier in John's Gospel, I did not come to do my will, but the will of the one who sent me. And so he is subjecting himself to the Father's will while he walked the earth. But is that an eternal subjection there where the Son is eternally subjected to the Father? And uh, we're not going to figure that out. Uh, There's a lot of dangers about that to say that somehow, does that mean that the second person of the Trinity is a lesser member of the Trinity? 
or, uh, you know, just how are we supposed to make sense out of that? You're going to get in a hole that you can't get out real easily when you start pushing the Trinity too hard. Right. That you're going to end up contradicting yourself and you, you won't be able to not, uh, untie that knot if you're not careful. Mm-hmm. All right, Mark, let me take a break. When I come back, I want to ask you about Jesus being tempted and what that mm-hmm. meant. Sure. And we'll be right back with Dr. Mark Muska. Ask the professor. So here I have him. At, uh, all you got to do is send the questions over, 877-933-2484. I'll ask on your behalf, but text the questions over, 877-933-2484. song play a little extra because that's mark muska's song his walk-up song he's our guest for the hour ask the professor let me know what your questions are 877-933-2484 again 877-933-2484 mark every time i wander into hebrews i always scratch my head a lot and in hebrews chapter (laughs) 2 join the party exactly uh chapter 2 verse 18 because he himself suffered when he was tempted He's able to help those who are being tempted. Mm-hmm. So the question is, when he was tempted, do we know what tempted him? Well, we got a good idea with Satan there that was uh, trying to get him to uh, break the, the law. And, and Jesus quotes Deuteronomy to him to put him in his place. You know, that, but I don't see him being tempted to want to do that. Well, it says he was tempted. So I'm going to go with that. <laughs> I, I, I'm with you on that, uh, that he, that the word says he was tempted, but I'm, I'm just, mm-hmm. I scratch my head a little bit thinking, what would be tempting the Lord? You know, you right. think, you think of Joseph running out of Potiphar's house, mm-hmm. like, I'm not going to be part of this. I'm not going to, mm-hmm. I want no part of this. Right. And so I'm trying to think of what situation might Jesus had been in when he thought, Ooh, I'm really tempted right now. Yeah, this uh, you're hitting some big-time theological questions here tonight that uh, theologians have scratched their heads on this one, too, about uh, sometimes it's called the impeccability of Christ issue. And the question is, was it possible for Jesus to sin? Now, among Bible-believing Christians, we all believe that he didn't sin, okay? So we can settle that. We're in union about that. But was it possible? Could he have sinned? And these kind of hypothetical questions, you always have to treat them delicately because you can just go around and around in circles if you're not careful. But uh, those who hold to what's called the impeccability of Christ say, not only didn't he sin, he couldn't sin. If, if he is truly God, how is God supposed to sin? That's against his very nature. So it's impossible for him to sin. Well, the peccability folks will say, well, you know, if Jesus was truly human, if he... He was tempted. In fact, Hebrews says this. He was tempted in all things, uh, yet without sin. So, and then uh, a, a hypothetical or a logical argument is made to say, if someone isn't able to do what they're being tempted to do, are they really being tempted? 
So I could take you up on the top of this building right now and say, come on, Bill, it's great. Go fly over to the other building over there. Mm-hmm. You know, just flap your arms a little bit and go. And I don't think, you know, even in your weakest moment, you're going to be tempted by that. <laughs> I don't think so either. Because you can't do it. Yeah, it's well, you, something... don't, you don't know that, Mark. Well, I'm pretty sure. Uh, 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 do you want to make an announcement here? I don't. <laughs> no, okay. I don't. Not today, anyway. You're going to make news here no, on I, the program. No, I, I, but uh, you get the point that if, if you're not able to do something, how can you be tempted by it? Yeah. And so uh, this, again, we just talked about the mystery of the Trinity and trying to figure out this with the relationship of the three persons of the Trinity to one another, yet they all are equally God themselves. Well, this is the other head scratcher, and that is having to do with the two natures of Christ united in one person. He's perfectly human, so he had to be able to sin like Mm -hmm. all humans. He's perfectly divine, and so there's no way he could have sinned. I talked to you before this that uh, one of the theologians I respect is Millard Erickson, and uh, he describes it by saying that uh, it was possible for Jesus to sin, but it was certain that he would not. Yeah, I love that. And so that's called sitting right there on the fence between the two. But maybe that's the best place to be Mm -hmm. because of of the paradox that we're facing here. Okay. All right, Mark, let's step into my personal Bible study I do with okay, my friends. Here we go. This Friday. is always dangerous. Okay. Yeah. Well, last Friday we talked about demon possession. Yeah. And the question came up because a member of the group, I won't name his name, but uh, he said that he doesn't really buy into the demon possession, yet it's all over Scripture. Um, what does it mean he doesn't buy into it? Well, you know, it could he just be, doesn't believe in it. Well, I think he thought it was more along the lines of people with mental illness, um, mm. that kind of thing. And how did we know? How would we know that they weren't just suffering from schizophrenia or bipolar or something like that, which yeah. would make them appear nuts? Well, that's a good question. He's and, a very smart guy. Well, if if you do a study of this, especially if you trace the way the Gospels describe Jesus' healing ministry you will find that there is a distinction made between Jesus healing things in the spiritual domain and in more of the natural. And the word psychological isn't used, of course. They didn't use it back then. But there is a distinction made between the two. And so uh, this is something that uh, especially Christian psychologists, Christian psychiatrists have, have wrestled with. I still remember my professor at Dallas Seminary, Frank Meyer, a brilliant uh, psychiatrist, and yet he taught our pastoral counseling class at Dallas Seminary, loved the Lord, believes every word of the Bible, and uh, he had his opinions about this, and he agreed with this in one respect where he talked about people who are schizophrenic, and one of the classic signs of schizophrenia is that people hear voices. Mm -hmm. And so he said these people would be talking about voices they heard, and so we'd get them in our clinic, and we'd counsel with them, and then they would treat them, psychiatrists able to use uh, pharmaceuticals, and so he would give a person an antipsychotic drug, and he said, and every time in my experience, and he'd been a psychiatrist now for over 20 years, he said, every time in my experience, we gave them the drug, and the voices went away. And so that led me to think that much of this is, in fact, a physiological, brain chemical kind of a thing going on that might have been associated with spiritual phenomenon in the past. But then you're going to get others that especially will have more to say on that subject. It isn't that easy to say every one of these psychological phenomenon uh, is physiological. It is not 
spiritual. Uh, I gained a lot of respect for a Christian group of psychiatrists, therapists, and uh, psychologists in Great Britain. They had this society, and I read a little bit about how they treated someone who was deeply troubled. And they put everything potentially on the table. They said, we will take uh, pharmaceutical things into consideration, physical, psychological things, but we're also going to include the possibility that this is spiritual as well. And I thought, Attaway, you know, why just eliminate one of those out of hand before you even deal with the person? There's a multiple possibilities of what's happening with this person. So uh, to me, that was well measured. That uh, that was a uh, that was a wise course to take. So uh, this. Uh, uh, with a, a demon possession, uh, there are enough testimonials of people, even in the 21st century now, that it's just not adequate to to uh, explain it away as something psychological or right. physiological. Right. It just doesn't go far enough. And Scripture is full of people that have been described as demon-possessed. Right, right. And so... So we're the, not supposed to write those people off as someone right. who, needs, who needs a, a pill. Mm-hmm. Well, somebody like your friend, though, would accommodate this to the knowledge that they had back in those times. Right. And so it's a, it's a defensible position. It is. But uh, it's, it's, uh, that takes you down a path sometimes you probably don't want to go down to say, well, things were different back then, but now we know more today. And right. so here, this is what's really going yeah. on. Got to be careful with yeah. that one. That'll take you down a path you don't want to go some of the time. What about when voices come out of somebody that they've, they've never used? Yeah. I mean, is this something that is uh, explainable through them just uh, play acting or somehow just so troubled that they're doing things? Uh, It just doesn't work uh, to uh, uh, write it off so simplistically like that. Mm -hmm. There's there's more that needs to be considered. Yeah, because the the demons would speak to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that would be, I wonder, I wonder what what that voice sounded like coming out of that I bet you person. it was very meek if they were speaking to Jesus. Interesting. Because they were terrified of him. When he cast the demons out of the Gazarene demoniac, you yeah. know, they begged him to leave them. <laughs> they, they, were, they were terrified by they Jesus. they knew exactly who he was. You bet. But a lot of questions come up. Can a believer be possessed? And, well, that's another good one, too. Yeah, yeah I know. So I, I really appreciate the work of... Uh, a scholar out on the West, West Coast. I believe he teaches at Biola at the Talbot School of Theology. His name is Clint Arnold. He's going to be on the show. Uh, really? Yeah, I'm, I'm having him on. Well, ask him about that because he wrote, go, get a, a hold of his book. He wrote a book a number of years ago that are, uh, it's called Three Crucial Questions About Spiritual Warfare. And the one question is, what is spiritual warfare? The second one is, can a Christian be demon-possessed? And the third one is, is there such a thing as territorial spirits? Ooh, and okay. so he did a lot of research on that. I heard him give a seminar on this maybe 20 years ago. So yeah. it's been around for a while, but he's very, uh, very sharp. Interesting, because I was going to talk to him about Sabbath rest, because he wrote this really interesting article about it. But I'm going to switch mm-hmm. gears and say, hey, Clint, we're going to talk about... Demon well, you can tomorrow. have him on twice, can't you? So. Well, I've got to see if I like him first. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's got the same last name as me. He can't be all bad, right? <laughs> he's got to be a relative, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I told him I'll, I'll invite all the rel- relatives to listen. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to take a little break. Uh, let me know what your questions are. 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest, and it's Ask the Professor. Be right back. No one knows about tomorrow, but old son just might not shine. So I take it. 
Back with Dr. Mark Muska. Ask the professor if you got questions, send them over. 877-933-2484. Have we covered everything about demons that we're going to cover today? I don't know. Yeah. We'll see. There might be six more calls. So I doubt it, but I mean, it was you more. Never know. Yeah, but you, you talked about something during the break, which I think we should add into the conversation, where a, a believer, if they're, you know, if the Holy Spirit lives in them, I can't imagine a demon's going to get inside. Right. But you made a comment about the level of oppression because Christians can be vulnerable. Right. Say that again, because you said it so yeah. much better than well, what uh, I can say. Uh, in reality, there may not be all that much difference between demon oppression and demon possession, or demonization is the word, uh, the way it's uh, said in the Bible. So, someone uh, is uh, comes under demonic power through the decisions they're making, through the things that they're doing. That can be extraordinarily controlling and oppressive even if the person has put their faith in the gospel and the Holy Spirit has taken up residence within them. Mm-hmm. Okay, does a person, another question from a listener, does a person receive the Holy Spirit immediately mm-hmm. without a definite outward experience like tongues or is it a non-experiential event? It's hard to answer this one without alienating either the Pentecostals out there or the non-Pentecostals. So, uh, there's going to be a difference of view when it comes to this in the tradition. So uh, when in doubt, I go over to the Bible and, and at least make the argument over what the Bible says, and we can we can uh, have it out with that because there's a significant difference in experience between those that come from those uh, two traditions. So uh, uh, technically speaking, uh, speaking, there is a... There is an action that the Holy Spirit takes when we put our faith in the gospel. And we can have confidence in this, that whether you're aware of it or not, you and me, if we put our faith in the gospel, the Holy Spirit, he seals us. And the word usually used for this is he he dwells in us. He takes up residence with us when we put our faith in the gospel. Uh, One of the verses I like to read about this is in Ephesians 1. Uh, Paul's talking about all the blessings we receive from the Father and then from the Son and then uh, from the Spirit. And uh, let me just read this of what he says about the Spirit here. He starts out, it's Ephesians 1.13. Paul is saying, In him, in Christ, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him, in Christ, with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance, with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. So that's explicit. When you put your faith in the gospel, when you believed the message, you were sealed into Christ, and the Holy Spirit was given to you as a a down payment of your inheritance. And so it's sound to hold to the idea that the Spirit takes up residence in us when we put our faith in the gospel. Most of the time, we're not aware of that. We're just smiling because our sins are forgiven and we're at peace with God, and nobody even talks to us that much about the Holy Spirit. So uh, when it comes to these manifestations, though, like tongues and other 
manifestations of the Spirit, that bill is usually associated with the filling of the Holy Spirit, not so much the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Where the filling of the Holy Spirit, uh, Paul uh, uh, explains this later on in Ephesians. In Ephesians 5, he talks about uh, the way we're supposed to live as Christians. And so in uh, verse 15, he starts giving some general guidance. He says, therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then here it comes. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, or it's a waste of time. But be filled with the Spirit. He's commanding them to be filled with the Spirit. These are Christians already who have the Spirit, but it appears as though he's contrasting filling of the Spirit as being drunk with wine. That the person who is drunk, they're under the control of the alcohol. That alcohol's empowering them. We even talk about this with drunk drivers. We'd say DUI, driving under the influence Mm -hmm. of the alcohol. And Paul said, don't do that. That's a waste of time, but be filled with the Spirit. And so it seems sound there. The comparison is don't come under the control and power of alcohol, but submit yourself to the control and power of the Holy Spirit. So this is something that is an ongoing, the language here in Ephesians is explicit. This is an ongoing decision we make to subject ourselves to the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit. I used to love what Bill Bright said, the founder of Crew, where he said every morning when he woke up, before his feet even hit the floor, he would pray in bed and he would ask God and the Holy Spirit to empower him for that day so that everything he did and everything he said was done in the fullness and power of the Holy Spirit. And it's no wonder to me that Crew is just this massive ministry that's had such an impact on the world in the last generation or so. Mm-hmm. So that's a different story. Now, people associate the speaking of tongues with the filling of the Spirit as well. And there's biblical warrant for that. In Acts 2, on the day of Pentecost, it says that when they were baptized with the Spirit, they were all filled with the Spirit. They heard the sound like a mighty rushing wind in the room they were in. There were these tongues of fire that came out of nowhere and rested over each of the apostles, and uh, they spoke in tongues. And so this connection is understandable that uh, the Pentecostal traditions would make this connection. The key thing is to ask, is that something that should be repeated and replicated through the church's history, or is this merely describing what happened when the church started? in Acts chapter 2. And so we'll get into a good discussion about that. Mm-hmm. I know that's a little long-winded, but it's hard to just uh, say a sentence or two to deal with that topic. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Ask the professor. Questions can be texted to 877-933-2484. Here's one, uh, Mark, in Revelation 5, 2 through 4, it says... Then I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. Awesome. Who, who is weeping? That's the question. John is weeping. Okay. Yes. He is starting here uh, in uh, uh, chapter 4. Uh, John is being escorted around by an angel here in the very presence of God. And God is being worshipped. And in the midst of this, this other character shows up. God is on the throne and they're worshipping him. But then in... Uh, uh, chapter 5, we see this lamb as if he had been slain that comes onto the scene, a clear indicator of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, 
He is the one who is able to take this book and open it because he is worthy to do it. This always reminds me of an old Gaither song they they wrote. It's about 10 minutes long about worthy is the lamb to take the book and to open it and to read from it. And it's just a glorious worship song that they that they wrote. So, yeah, this is John here weeping and saying, who, who can open the book? And the angel says, look, here, we've got the lamb that was slain. Mm-hmm. Here's another question. Will those who are saved be in the new heaven or the new earth after Christ returns? Yes. May we, we return with him. Yes. But that's... Well, is it those who are saved who are still alive? Well, it's a little bit hard to figure out. I'm, right. I read, read it a couple of times. Will those who are saved be in the new heaven or the new earth after Christ returns? Right. Yeah, it really doesn't matter that much because uh, if we can understand First Thessalonians 4, that when Jesus appears, one of the things that is accompanied in that is the resurrection of the dead. And Paul is trying to reassure the Thessalonian believers, that if they have brothers and sisters in Christ who have died here now, they're not going to miss out on anything when Jesus appears. And this is the story where it says there's going to be the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and then the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. And he says, and so we will always be with the Lord. Mm -hmm. So that's when the resurrection takes place. And then after Jesus returns, and we can get into an argument about whether there's a millennial kingdom for Christ or not, uh, but after after he returns, there are the judgments, and then after the judgments, this is when John describes seeing this new heavens and new earth come to replace the old one. The other one passed away, he says, in Revelation 21. And so it appears as though uh, they're going to be right in the thick of things uh, right through this whole process. Mm-hmm. Here's a great question. Would you explain sanctification? Yeah, sanctification is, uh, or the word sanctify, uh, there's two or three words in English that we use to translate a Hebrew word in the Old Testament and a Greek word in the New Testament. Uh, One of them is, uh, uh, the word in the New Testament is hagias, and uh, this word can be translated either as to sanctify or be sanctified or to be holy, or to be consecrated. And the idea behind this is that sanctification is the action that is taken that separates something from something else, so that the thing or the person who is sanctified is different from everybody else in one respect or another. So God is described as holy in the sense that there's no God like him. You can't compare him to anyone. He's one of a kind. He's unique. He's holy because he's different than everybody else. We are described as being a holy people once we put our faith in the gospel because now we are different or separated from the world and from our old way of life. And so we have been sanctified, the Scripture says, when we put our faith in the gospel. But we also are being sanctified or set apart or made holy throughout our lifetime where we actually are different, hopefully, from the person we were yesterday and the the person we were a month ago and a year ago, that we are growing as Christians. And the goal of that, of course, is to become like Christ. 
Paul says this in Colossians 1, if I can find it here fast enough, he's describing his ministry and the ministry of the apostles. And uh, in Colossians 1.28, he says, we, we apostles, proclaim Christ, admonishing everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ. And that word complete means finished mm-hmm. or matured or done. And so that is that process of sanctification that takes place. Then there is a final sanctification takes place. When we die, we're separated from this world, and now we are in a different domain of existence. But uh, if if I can take just one more minute yeah. for it, Bill, even inanimate objects were considered sanctified or holy. Uh, one of my favorite passages in Daniel is over in Daniel chapter 5, when uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, grandson is having this wild party and they're all drinking everything, well, they go get the utensils that were used in the temple in Jerusalem and they bring them out and bring them into the party to use them that way. And uh, this is the passage where the guy sees the handwriting on the wall, presumably this hand not attached to a body. (laughs) It's just writing on the wall. I love the expression there. It says he saw this and the joints in his legs loosened (laughs) and his knees knocked together. He was terrified of this thing. But the reason that was such an affront was those utensils, those things they took out of the temple, they were holy. They were sanctified. They were only to be used in the temple. You didn't use those for some drunken party. Mm-hmm. I like to say to students, this is the th- uh, thing with your granny who has a hutch in her living room, and she's got the good china mm-hmm. in that hutch. That china is holy as well. It's sanctified. It's not the everyday thing you use. I right. mean, heaven help the kid that grabs one of those china plates and throws a hot dog on it and <laughs> throws it in the microwave. You might not ever hear from that kid yeah, again right. because that's wholly material. These set things. apart. So, yeah, yeah it's yeah. set apart. It's different. It's in a class of its own. Yeah. So. Awesome. Take a little break. Dr. Mark Muska is my guest. Ask the Professor, 877-933-2484. Again, 877-933-2484. back with Dr. Mark Muska, and we've got a hornet's nest stirred up here a little bit. We've got some, um, someone says a, a believer can be possessed. So there you go. Yeah, this is not a settled question. Uh, uh, some people who deal in spiritual warfare, uh, they can be exorcists or people who d- deal in these spiritual powers. They have testimonials to say, you know, this looked very much like uh, demon possession of a person who had a clear Christian testimony. So uh, we have to be open to this. Uh, I don't think it's necessarily a settled question, especially when you get into the spiritual domain. There's a whole lot going on there that I think most of us uh, don't uh, have the whole story on. 
All right, here's another question. Is there a difference between the sons of God over the children of God? Yeah, it depends on the context, Bill, because in some places, especially in the Old Testament, the sons of God is a reference to the angelic powers, that this is one of the titles used for them. And uh, the children of God, this usually is, uh, again, I can't just say definitively, it just means this or that, because there's different contextual uh, indicators to uh, what exactly is being talked about. So in John one twelve, when John says that to as many as received him, to them, he, he allowed them to become children of God, clearly talking about those who put their faith in the gospel now, they have this label, they are children of of God. They are his kids. The idea of sons of God, this also gets into another theological category of the idea that when we put our faith in the gospel, we are adopted into uh, a God's family. And so not only are we, uh, are we part of his family, but the idea of adoption is that we are made, made heirs of his promise. Uh, I'm just looking at this over in Ephesians 1 here. Uh, Paul's just going down the list here of all the blessings we receive from God. I got to start with verse 3, but I want to get to verse 5. Ephesians 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose or elected us in him before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him, in love, here it comes, verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. The, the word itself for adoption literally means to be placed as a son in the language here. And so uh, we're not being sexist. The women that have put their faith in the gospel don't need to feel like second-class citizens of the kingdom. That designation son in the ancient Near East, the sons were the heirs. And so he's trying to make this out that adoption means you now are the inheritors of God's promises. And so you women out there are just as much heirs of God's promises as the men are. This is the term that was being used at that time to describe it. Does that make sense at all? So then, you know, you've got this idea of sons of God. Yes, we all are because we are heirs of God's promises. Mm Mm-hmm. Mark, have we talked in this hour about Jeremiah twenty nine eleven? I don't know. I, I know. Did you reference it at some point? Because I'm trying to piece some of the puzzle pieces together. Because I got a, a question about clarifying that there is kind of a, a name it and claim it a false gospel hmm. that usually uh, p- pertains to money and health. And yeah, I don't so know. all you do is profess it and then it'll be. I don't think and, we've talked about it. Yeah. Okay. Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. A lot of people have this memorized. I know they I, I've do. seen this on jewelry before. Yeah, uh, it's a very precious verses where uh, God is speaking through Jeremiah here, and He says, "For I know the plans I have for you," declares the Lord, "plans for welfare and not for calamity, mm-hmm. to give you a future and a hope." Then you'll call on me, and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And that's a wonderful promise. A lot of the time we don't respect the context of this, though, because in Jeremiah, the people are going into captivity to Babylon, and God is just pounding 
the Jews. They are they are going to be oppressed and they are going to be in a foreign land for a whole generation. But he's trying to help them see that there is sunshine that comes through after all this. He still has plans for them for a future and a hope. And he will bless them. So he's going to look for their welfare and not for calamity. These times of suffering aren't going to last forever. He's going to, he's going to redeem them. He's going to bring mm-hmm. them back. It's a beautiful verse, but it's yeah. often a verse that uh, gets a little bit taken out of context. Yeah, I don't mind so much because this is the nature of God that is timeless, that he is, on, uh, he is for us and not against us. So even when he has to discipline, and I don't know anybody that likes God's discipline, you're a little loopy if you like God's discipline, but he always is, has uh, the sun come out again. It's never uh, with his children. He, he never just uh, harms or disciplines us forever. So uh, in principle, I think we can, we can uh, identify with this promise, even though we have to recognize it was given to a different people at a different time. Um, let's see here. We are getting through a ton of questions today. Yeah, we're getting a lot of them. Um, is the beast in Revelations 12 and 13 and Daniel 7 the same? And what does the 20 horns and the small one that takes <laughs> over three of the others? Yeah, uh, boy, that that, uh, that is way over my head. Okay. We got to get Ed Glennie in here. He's, yeah. he's our revelation man. Cool. Uh, that he... Uh, uh, you get into this symbolism that is being described there, and uh, wow, uh, I just don't have the chops, Bill, to get in there and, and uh, speak with any kind of confidence. I, I read that and, and uh, wonder about it myself. I do think, however, that it it is a connection with what's being talked about in Daniel 9 there. Okay. Um, Sorry to no, that's okay. bail that's okay. on you, but it just... Will uh, all believers be part of the banquet in heaven, or will some not be included who have not lived up to their purpose that God had intended for them? I don't see anywhere where there's that distinction made. The distinction that is made is the ideas of rewards and things that will be recognized of our service uh, to the Lord. But as far as missing out on the banquet, you know, are these people going to be standing outside going for leftovers or something like that? You know, (laughs) uh, I don't know about uh, uh, saying something like that. But uh, uh, Paul here gets into this whole thing about uh, the, the rewards, the recognition we receive in 1 Corinthians 3, starting in verse 10. Let me just read it here. He says, According to the grace of God, which was given to me, like a wise master builder, I laid a foundation, and another is building on it. But each one must be careful how he builds on it. So he's talking about the foundation of the gospel and the work of God. He says, For no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. There's This is where we get the title of our, our hymn here about uh, a firm foundation is Jesus Christ our Lord, right from that verse. So Jesus is the foundation. And then he says, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it's to be re- re- revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each person's work. If anyone's work, which they have done, uh, built on it, remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, they'll suffer loss. 
that they themselves will be saved yet as through fire. So this is quite clear that there is going to be a, a testing of the works and how we build on the gospel and the foundation of Jesus and the apostles. Uh, that's true in the 21st century here too. Mm-hmm. Mark, we just have two minutes left. Let okay. me ask you this. Can you give any insight about a biblical response to discussions for or against climate change? Oh boy. I know it's, I gave you with two minutes. So I think of Psalm 24, the earth is mm-hmm. the Lord's and mm-hmm. everything in it the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. Yeah. I'd say he's in charge. Yep. Uh, I like to go back to Genesis with this too and what God did with Adam here because he sets this up. The the garden and the creation is very interesting what he says about Adam here. Uh, Let me see if I can find uh, the verse here. Yeah, in uh, Genesis 2, verse uh, 7, he forms Adam from the dust of the ground, breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. The Lord planted a garden toward the east, and he describes this garden. And then look at verse uh, 15. It says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and to keep it. Mm, Nice. And Christian environmentalists really do work with that to say, Cultivate it means to use it for the benefit of humanity, that it's there. But to keep it means to preserve it and to protect it. Yeah. Mark, always good to be with you. Thank you so much. You bet. Yeah, that was a great uh, Ask the Professor. Thanks for all your great questions. I'm sorry if I didn't get to yours. We had a whole bunch of them we didn't quite get to, but we'll put them on file for next time. Have a great night, everyone. Thanks for spending time with me. If you're just tuning into the podcast and it's later at night, I hope you've had a great day. I look forward to spending time with you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.